Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. All right, so this uh, great English dramatist and essayist, let me start this over again, says, all other passions condescend at times to accept the inexorable logic to facts, meaning facts are facts regardless. But here's what jealousy does to facts. Jealousy looks facts straight in the face and ignores them utterly and says she knows a great deal better than they can tell her. Jealousy is this intoxicating poison that tempts a person to drink of its follies and suffer its consequences. And as we continue the story of Cain and Abel today, I'm going to read all 16 verses again. I want you to follow along with me in the story of Cain and Abel. If you aren't sure where it is, it's the very first book in the Bible, and it's the fourth chapter in. So Genesis chapter 4, we're looking at the first 16 verses. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. She gave birth to Cain. Uh, when she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I've produced a man. She's pretty darn excited about this. She's had a son, the firstborn son. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. And when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd and Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord, and Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Well, this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin's crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it. Now stop. Why, why did God accept? That is dangerous right there. Why did God accept Abel's gift and not Cain's? See, we talked about this last week. Apathy leads to dejection from God or rejection from God. Have you ever been apathetic about your faith? Or if you have a faith at all? Have you ever been kind of like, uh, about God? Maybe you're agnostic. Maybe you're atheist. Maybe you are a believer in Christ, but your passion for Christ is not as great as it once was. And so Abel and Cain, we have this story, the very beginning of time, where Abel brings the best, the first fruits, the Something that actually sacrificed him money or something of, of good or of wealth. But did you catch the subtlety? Cain brought some of the harvest. Now, there's a deeper issue here in the heart. God always looks upon the heart of the giver. And if you notice in that section, it says he not only rejected the gift, he also rejected the giver. 
We don't like to hear that. We only like to hear the good parts of the Bible where God accepts us and loves us and it's all roses and lollipops and all of that fun stuff. But there is something that God rejects. God rejects our half attempts. We talked about this a little bit this morning in our class that there are things that God rejects. We've been, I, think, I think we've done a disservice in our churches, at least in our culture, by saying, well, God will take whatever you give him and he'll multiply it over and over and over again. And it's almost as if we're basically letting everybody off the hook and saying, whatever you give is fine. Don't worry about it. But God only accepts the best. And I gave this illustration last week. Let me put it in this context. How would you feel if somebody was obligated to give you a gift and they were like, oh, I've got to get so-and-so a gift. It's her birthday. And you knew that that's how they felt about it and they gave you the gift. Would, how would you receive that gift? Huh? I, you'd be like, oh, great. Thanks. You know? Or have you ever gotten a gift from somebody but it was really for them or for you? Right? Somebody close to you that lives in your home. Hey, I got you this new uh, grill, honey. <laughs> or this new fishing pole, sweetheart. You know what I'm saying? Um, I got you this new hunting rifle. And some of the ladies hunt, so I don't want to diminish that. But do you know what I'm saying? You get where I'm going with this. Let's look at it in a different perspective. The gift of time. How would you feel, spouses, if your spouse came to you and said, listen, I've got 10 minutes. Let's make the best of it. It's all I got to give you today. Seriously, let's go. Let's go. We got to get, and you can put, fill in the blanks with where I know some of your minds are going to really bad places, Julie, but I'm talking about just time. <clears throat> I'm serious. You could, what I see on the front row up here is, and those of you listening online, you're just going to have to come and check it out. So uh, seriously, listen to this though. How would you feel? But we do that with our prayer time, don't we? Oh, God, I just, I don't have time to read your word. I don't have time to spend. I'll give you five, uh, no, I'll give you 30 seconds before a meal. Is that okay? And God's like, I don't, um, really? A couple seconds before you go, go to bed? God, Lord, to lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord. We give God not even leftovers. We give him mere crumbs. So now put this in the context of Cain and Abel. He just bring, he's probably bringing more than most of us bring. And God says, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want it. Thanks, but no thanks. But Abel takes time and effort, brings him the best that he has to offer. That's tough for us to chew on, isn't it? And then God gives him a warning. Because God is a God of second chances. Because God loves, he's long-suffering, he's willing to go the extra mile on us, for us, so what does he say? Why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? I mean, you'll be accepted if you do what's right. Now, we can read into that, but I don't think it's reading into it by saying, when God says you'll be accepted if you do what's right, Cain has done something wrong, and God's giving him a, a next opportunity. And what's that opportunity? To do right. See, God can look upon the heart of a man or a woman. 
and know from whence a gift came. We do this a lot. How do we transpose this into our day and age? How do we look at it like that? Do we give God our best? Does what we give God sacrifice something in us to him? If it doesn't cost you much, if it's a mere token of praise or of worship to God, God's like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And you can read all of this throughout the Old Testament. And the minor prophets and the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Malachi, you read all of those, and God says, yeah, listen, stop bringing me your diseased animals. They don't cost you anything. It's like in that day and age, you were to bring a sacrifice to the temple so that it could be sacrificed for forgiveness of sins. And it was an honor to God to bring the best you had to offer. It was, if you look in Leviticus, it was to be unblemished, not diseased. It couldn't be blind. It couldn't, you know, be lame. It it couldn't have like three legs. It had to have four if it was a lamb, right? It couldn't be hobbling along and stumbling everywhere. And this is what the people began to bring. And in Malachi chapter 1, God says to the priests, stop it. Well, why did he get onto the priests? Because the priests were the ones that would bring it into the temple and sacrifice it on behalf of the people. But the problem was they were accepting the offerings from the people that were diseased and disgusting. And God says, you know what? Just shut the whole thing down. I'd rather you not do anything than to bring me your second best, your, your diseased offerings. And we get upset at God. Why do we get upset at God? We get upset at God because we think it's unfair we have to bring him our best or that we have to give him really honor and praise and glory. But if God is God, doesn't it stand to reason that he deserves our best? Am I, let me, am I losing you here? I just want to make sure I'm not losing you here. If God is God and he is perfect, he is holy, he is righteous, he is the creator of heaven and earth and the universe and everything that exists, doesn't it stand to reason that he deserves our best? And he requires our best. And it stands also to reason that he reserves the right to reject what he wants to reject. But we don't like serving a God like that. We like a God who loves us no matter what. And he does. And here's the caveat. He loves you no matter what. But he will also love you enough to let you go your own way. And if your own way leads to destruction and separation from him for eternity, then he'll give you that. Not because he wants that for you, but because he loves you enough not to override your free will and force his will on you. Does this make sense? Okay, so now we come to this point in the passage of Scripture for today where it says, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. What does he do? He takes Abel into his territory, and he says, 
or he says, let's go out into the fields. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, some of the Jewish targums and all of the uh, Jewish literature seem to think, because there wasn't really weaponry at the time, that he took a stone and beat him over the head with it. That is pure speculation. We don't know. We just know that he was attacked. It could have been with his bare hands. It could have been any, any certain way. We don't know. But what we do know is he attacked him and killed him in the field. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Sounds like some of the arguments my kids have with each other. But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now you're cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. I think it's interesting that instead of Cain being remorseful, saying, Oh no, what have I done? I've killed my brother. He starts to worry about what's going to happen to him. You see, when jealousy and sin takes root in a person's life and they don't deal with it, it then continues to perpetuate this snowball effect of sin in our lives that will ultimately lead to death because it begins to force us inwardly in seeing how we can benefit from something. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And I find this so intriguing that God could have knocked, if nobody, anybody else killed him, they would have been, had the sevenfold punishment. But God could have taken his life right then and there and said, enough's enough. But what does God do? He protects Cain. So lest we think that God is some mean, horrible ogre who's always unfair, rejecting this and rejecting that and blah, 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 we see the gift of grace in four chapters in to this story on Cain and Abel. Here's the point this morning. Jealousy secludes and kills. What jealousy does is it takes us out of where we should be and puts us in a field of seclusion. And when it has its way with us, it brings others along with us to seclude them so that we could do to them harmful things. This is what happened with Cain and Abel. And here's a couple points this morning. In this verse today, in this, this verse 8, where, where Cain takes Abel into the fields, he attacks his brother and kills him. This is what we can take away. Jealousy deceives in order to seclude. Jealousy will always deceive you and another person in order to seclude from the rest of the crowd. See, this is what sin does. Sin wants to pull us away from accountability. It wants to pull us away from the crowds. Sin is masterful. The enemy is masterful about pulling us away from the crowds and into the darkness. And when we're in the darkness where nobody else can see, then we do things that are atrocious and that are horrible. Many of us in this place have things that if our life were exposed, would hate for anybody else to see. 
But God sees all things. And it's him that's most important. So why should we not try to please him more than anyone else? But Cain, for some reason, in a lapse of real uh, thinking, if you will, takes his brother Abel out into the fields. He's already premeditated what he's going to do. He's allowed that sin that was crouching at his door to take control. And sin comes in many forms. It may not be jealousy. It could be pride. It could be wickedness. It could be gossip. We don't like to hear that one because we all do it. It could be rumors. It could be sexual immorality. We don't like to touch that because we live in a culture today that accepts sexual immorality as just the status quo. But it will lead you to a place you don't want to go and ultimately will lead to death and eternal separation from God. But I digress. But this is what sin does. It crouches at the door and it waits. And if we just have, have you ever, let me back up just a minute. We talked about this a little bit in class this morning. Have you ever have you ever done this? Have you ever told your, if you have kids or grandkids, have you ever told, don't put your finger in the light socket. Don't touch the stove. What do kids want to do when you tell them not to do it? Right, because there's a sin nature. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all been born into sin, into a sinful world. We all are in need of a Savior. And this is what sin does. It's masterful at deceiving, getting you to open the door, even just a crack is enough, is enough that it can get a foothold in your life. But we don't like to hear that. Brandon, well, you're just being judgmental. No, I'm not. If I'm saying anything contrary to Scripture, then I am. If I'm using Scripture to lord over you, to hold my thumb on you, then that's wrong. But I'm letting the word speak for itself. God told Cain, sin crouches at your door, and it wants to take control of you, but you have to master it. You have to subdue it. Did you hear what God said? He didn't say, I will subdue it for you. Did you hear him say that to Cain? Come on. No. He says, you need to master it. You need to subdue it. Now, unless we think God's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs waiting for us to do something, he does give us strength to do the right things. He's there with us, championing us, warning us. And there's a small voice inside most of us, and I'm going to dare say all of us, that we know that we know that we know. We probably shouldn't do this one thing that we're being tempted with. Right? But the urge and the desire to do it is so much greater. And James says this. He says that this happens. James chapter 1. Temptation comes from our own desires. Where do they come from? Which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. So desire or temptation, when, when, when that desire and temptation is right there, if we don't subdue it and master it, what happens? It gives birth to action. We act on the desires we have, 
And then sin, when it's allowed to grow, gives birth to death. See, the, it's, it's much harder to get rid of sin once you've allowed it to grow and take root in your life than it is to not let it take root at all. And this is why God says to Cain, don't. Stop. Do that. Don't do this. If you allow it to come in, it will master you. See, the culture that we live in screams a lot louder than the church does. And when the church does scream loud, we're considered obnoxious, holy rollers, homophobes, Islamophobes. You fill in the blank. But if we remain silent, is it any better? See, the church has remained silent for so long on these issues. Because sin, which crouches at our door, tempts us to hold back. James also goes on to say, if you know the right thing and you don't do it, it's sin. That's tough. So not only is sin doing the wrong thing, it's also knowing the right thing and not doing it. Man, does anybody escape this? No, that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need someone like Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions. Who was perfect, not blemish, not disease. God gave that offering for us. Isn't this amazing? Do you see how this plays together? Because we could never offer a perfect enough sacrifice through animals or whatever even giving of ourselves was even if we sacrificed our own bodies, we are blemished by sin. And even our own death wouldn't suffice enough in God's economy for us to make it to heaven. That's why there needed to be someone who was perfect, unblemished, unstained. And God was the only one who was perfect, unblemished, and unstained. And he stepped into time. He lived among us. He dwelt among us, John says. We didn't recognize him. He took our punishment. You see, God loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. See, there's a choice there too. And that's hard for us to believe because we all want to believe everybody makes it to heaven when they die. Every funeral I've ever done, no matter the person, everybody wants to believe, no matter how much a person lived like Satan, they want to know that they made it to heaven. And don't we all? But I'm not the judge. I won't know until I cross over into that place. The only way we can know for sure is having that assurance in Christ in our own lives. And God was giving Cain that opportunity, but Cain allowed his anger and his dejection to take control. And I see it often as a pastor. You know how many people get mad at me 
because I hold them accountable or call them out for things, and I open myself up to the same thing. Listen, if you see me doing something wrong, call me out on it. But when I've called people out, when I've said this isn't something that lines up with God's best, they get mad at me. And I could soften it a little bit and say, you know what? It's okay, just continue doing whatever you're doing. But am I doing them a service by saying, continue to live in sin, it's going to be okay? Because I'm lying to them, I'm giving them a false gospel. I'm no better than the false teachers that Paul was speaking against in any of the letters he wrote. Or Jesus speaking against the Pharisees who were, who were speaking this, um, this, this ministry over the people but lording it over them and they weren't even living by it. I would rather you be angry with me but know the truth than for me to fill your ear full of fluff and go to hell. But I can't decide for you just as God wouldn't decide for Cain. But sin deceives, jealousy deceives in order to seclude. It also, jealousy secludes in order to kill. Jealousy secludes in order to kill. When we allow sin to have control of us, it closes us off to anything sensible and good. We begin to believe the lie that what we're doing is okay. We begin to justify sin on its own course rather than on God's terms. Well, it's okay if I do. It's not hurting anybody else. How many times have I heard that? How many times have you heard that? If it doesn't hurt anybody else, what's the big deal? Because God says, no, this isn't your best, and it's not my best for you, and if you do this, it'll separate you from me. There are several times, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, where God says, these kind of sins, if you do them, will not let you into the kingdom of heaven. Why am I being so harsh on this? Why am I? Because I care enough to tell you. If you read, I, I always quote uh, the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. That's in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. But if you read verses 19 up to that point, do you know what it says? talks about wicked behavior. And do you know there's a whole list of sins there? And it's not an exhaustive list. And there's more sins than there are fruit of the Spirit in that list, if you read it. But read that list, Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 19. It does have sexual immorality in there. It has some of the, what we would consider the big ones. But then it has jealousy in there and gossip. And some of the ones we would deem as lesser sins, but they're all in this. And it says, Paul says, these kinds of people won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Do we take him at his word or do we just risk it all and wait until we get there? You see, I would rather bank on what God says is true and right and holy then throw caution to the wind and do whatever my desires tell me to do because I'm gambling my life away if I do that. And what kind of life do I live if I live by God's standards and come to the end of my days? Is it a bad life? If I'm generous and good, if I'm loving, if I'm holy, if I give my life to those kind of things and living in those ways, is that a bad thing? 
I would hope you would say no. But if I live the other way, how much more destruction does that cause in my life and the lives around me? If I'm jealous, does that benefit me? No. Does it benefit the person I'm jealous about? No. If I gossip, does it benefit me? Definitely not. Does it benefit the other person I'm gossiping about? Nope. It does not. Yeah, jealousy secludes in order to kill. I want to, I want to read this, and it's a bit of a lengthy passage, but I want you to hear this. Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church, the church in Rome, the Christians in Rome. It is one of the, if you want to look at, you know, sometimes like us pastors, we write a sermon. Somebody will say, what is the best sermon you've ever preached? And we could probably pull out a handful that we think, oh, this was the best. All right, so Paul's writing, this is probably Paul's best letter. It's his magnum opus. It is the letter. Now, his other letters are great. They are the word of God as much as this is. But this is his treatise against sin and death and the law. And he talks about law, uh, the law juxtaposed against grace. And in Romans chapter 8, there are 17 verses. I want you to, to, to buckle up and, and listen with me on this because this really illustrates what's going on, I think, in Cain's heart here. So look at this, what Cain and Abel and the whole story we've been looking at. Romans 8, starting with verse 1. It will not be on your screen, but I'm reading from the New Living Testament. So if you need to close your eyes and listen, just listen. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. All right, that is a word of awesome truth. I don't want to skim over that. Is there any condemnation for somebody who is in Christ Jesus? Okay, good. I'm glad most of you said that back. No, there is no condemnation. And because you belong to him... The power of the living spirit, the life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit, has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Okay, so now that you are in Christ, what does, what happens to the power of sin in your life? It's gone. You have basically given control over to God through Christ Jesus and your belief in him, and the Holy Spirit has now taken residence in you. And when the Holy Spirit frees you from the power of sin that leads to death, you're then free from death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weaknesses of our sinful nature. All the law could do was point out what we're doing wrong. The law can't save you, just as the laws of the United States of America can't save you. They only point out what's wrong. Okay, so let's go. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own, his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have, and in that body, God declared it into sense control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came, and in his, and in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? He did what we couldn't do. It's exactly what Paul's saying here. He actually did what was right in every single way according to the law of Moses. He fulfilled it to the point of death. And then through him we're set free. 
God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Be careful, Cain. Sin crouches at your door ready to control you. I know the desires you have in your heart, and they're not good. They'll separate you from me. Don't let it master you. You subdue that sin. You control it. And we could never do it. So Jesus came at just the right time in human history, and what God did through Jesus was fulfill the law and declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Does this make sense? It does, but it's hard to take in. He did this so that we that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Did you know when you break the law, there's punishment or consequences for the law? Okay, so there's varying degrees of punishment. If you read Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and all that, and you read the law of Moses, you read the Ten Commandments and Exodus, when we read all of that, we realize that there's certain punishments for certain breaking of certain laws. What does murder require? If I murder somebody, what's the requirement in the Old Testament? You get killed. You get executed. Adultery. What kind of punishment is there for adultery? You get stoned to death. You get killed. Both, both adulterers get killed. Jesus comes onto the scene. He fulfills the law perfectly, and he's the only one that's able to do that. And then he takes the punishment of those sins, of those laws, upon himself. Thus, sealing the deal of the old covenant. That's why when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he can say with the cup of, the, uh, the, the cup of wine, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the sins of many. What's the new covenant? It's a new covenant of grace through the blood of Christ, which requires our complete surrender to Jesus of all that we are, all that we desire, everything goes to him, so that we do what pleases him rather than what pleases self. Because you think in doing what you desire is going to make you a happier person, but you've given in to the deception of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you to believe that if you give in to these desires that you have, that you're going to be more fulfilled. But what it ends up leaving you is completely empty. But if you surrender everything to Christ and what he did for you, who's taken the punishment for you, you believe in him and you give everything that you are and everything that you have to him, you become the most fulfilled this is why jealousy is this deceiving thing this is why sin can't have control or sway over us unless it deceives us into believing a lie those who are dominated by the sinful nature Paul says think about sinful things is that true those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things well, what are sinful things? Give me a list. I've given you a couple places you can look for lists, but if you read scripture from beginning to end, you get a kind of an idea about what God expects and doesn't expect from us. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. 
And when you start to have things that pop into your mind that are not of the Spirit, when you are surrendered to the Spirit, you are to take control of those thoughts, capture them, control them, just as you would with Cain at the beginning of, of, of the, the book of, of Genesis. Be careful. It's going to still be crouching at your door. Don't open the door. Master it. Control it. Take every thought captive. Think on these things that are holy and praiseworthy and good. You could read that in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. What leads to death? Letting your sinful nature control your mind. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. How was, uh, how was Cain with the rejection? How did he deal with that? He was super happy and he said, I'm going to do better next time, God. He was angry and dejected. Does this not say the same thing? Letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. The sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never will obey God's laws. It, ne or it never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Who was under control of the sinful nature and couldn't please God, and God rejected them in our story today? Cain. Cain was rejected, and so was his offering, because he was under the control of sinful behavior and desires. And he could not please God. Well, that's not fair. God should be pleasable. He's like a loving father with a long beard, and he goes, <laughs> I love you. We get this picture. I don't know what your picture of God is like, but God is, yes, this loving being. John tells us in 1 John that his very nature is love, but love also is justice. We think they're, they're, they're against each other, love and wrath, judgment and love, but love in God's economy, also has this other side. And this other side of love is a willingness to let you do what you want to do, be what you want to be, and suffer the consequences for it, even if it's eternal separation and punishment. But you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And how do you have the Spirit of God living in you? You surrender your life to Jesus Christ who took your punishment because you couldn't do it. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. He's talking to us. Your physical body is someday going to die, but you're still going to live eternally if you have Christ and the Holy Spirit living in you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Did you hear that? You don't have to do it. That's exactly what he's saying. You don't have to sin. And I hear people say, well, I sin all every day. That is a lie from the enemy. You may have been told that by some other preacher. Well, you sin every day. No. No. 
It's like I, I tell my kids this. It's like, I'm just going to have a horrible day at school today. Yeah, you probably will. Because that's what you're expecting and that's what you're going to give in to. Well, I sin every day. You've basically given yourself over to sin. You basically defined what you're going to be doing that day. And if you don't think at a higher level than that, then you will give over to sin on a regular basis. Well, are you telling me that I never sin once I come to Christ? No. But I am telling you are called to live a holy life. The standard is different for those who are in Christ Jesus. The bar has been raised. When you come to Christ and give your life to him, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so we don't give in to the sinful nature. We don't allow it to have control over us. But when it does happen, James tells us this, Paul tells us this, but when it does, there is a Savior who has stood in the gap for you, who's taking the punishment for you. The difference between living in your sin and stumbling in the midst of your walk with Christ is subtle, but it's, it's true. The enemy can get you to believe, well, if I'm going to sin every day, then all I have to do is believe in Christ and then I'm good. It's my get-out-of-jail-free card. No, it's a heart issue, all right? This is where the heart issue comes into play. God looks upon the heart, not the outward appearance. If I want to continue in a pattern of sin and behavior, I know that God does not expect of me and will send me straight to hell, then I need to stop it, subdue it, surrender it, and come to Christ. I need to be set free by Jesus Christ, who took the punishment for my sin. And then I want to do whatever pleases God. What am I going to do that pleases God? I'm going to live by his word. I'm going to be drenched in his word. And it's not a devotional with one verse of scripture every day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. That's not going to cut it. You have the greatest privilege that mankind has ever known. Many of us have multiple Bibles on our shelves, on our phones. You need to soak it in. You need to be reading it daily. It needs to be a priority in your life because the words of life are in there. And if you give more time and more thought to the sinful desires that crouch at your door than you do to the word of God, then you're set up for failure. You need to be praying and spending time with the Lord. You need to be communing and communicating with him. You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. Do you hear? There's, there's no gray area there. I wish there were. There are times that I wish everybody, I wish the universalist and pluralistic concept of God was true so that everybody would make it to heaven in the end, no matter how you lived your life. But that's not what we know to be true according to God's word. If you live by sin, you're going to die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you'll live. So you can put your sinful nature to death through Christ Jesus who died for you. For all 
who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So not everybody's a child of God. Again, I've, I've talked about this before. No. You mean all of God's created human beings are not children of God? No. And I'm not saying that. The scripture says that if you are a believer in Christ and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to take residence in you, you have been adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You have become a child of God. But if you don't, then you are not God's child. You are a child of sin, a child of death, a child of the enemy. There's a defining point there. What do we do with all this? I'm going to close as our worship team comes forward. In the tragedy of Othello, Shakespeare wrote, Oh, beware of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. As God warned Cain, beware, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. He warns us today. It's a timeless truth that has never lost its bite. Cain ended up giving in to the green-eyed monster. Cain opened the door of sin, driven by jealousy, and it caused him to lure his, brother, lure his brother away from other people into this seclusion so that he could do one of the most unforgiving things known to mankind, kill one of his own. Have you allowed sin to enter your life? Have you allowed sin to enter your home? Are you living completely against what God's commands and teachings are for your life? You see, the reason he gives us boundaries and he gives us these, these rules to live by is not to punish us. It's to help us live a more fulfilled life. See, God gives Jesus Christ to suffer our punishment so that we don't have to suffer the punishment. But when we continue to live in a life of sin, we're basically making a mockery of what he did. We're saying, oh, yeah, I know he suffered the punishment for my sin, but I'm going to continue to sin because he suffered the punishment, which gives me a free license to continue to sin. No, there's no sacrifice. If you read Paul's letter to the Romans, he's going to say, That's, you're basically making a mockery of what Jesus did. You're nailing him back up there again. Don't do it. You want to live the most fulfilling and peace-filled life? You have to do what Jesus says. <clears throat> if you want to save your life, here's what you do. You have to lose it for my sake, Jesus says. But if you want to lose your life, hang on to it. Do whatever you want to do. But then he says something really significant. What does it profit you? If you gain what the world has to offer but lose your soul? What if you gain everything? What if you gain wealth, fortune, fame? You can sleep with whomever, whenever you want to. You can do whatever you want to. You can just throw caution to the wind and live however you want to. What does it profit you if you gain all of that, but you lose your soul? <clears throat> and, and what is 75, give or take, years compared to eternity? Let's put this into perspective. How long is eternity? Do you, do we, can we wrap our minds around forever? 
So we have a choice in our forevers. Forever separated from God in hell or forever with him in eternity. Not floating on clouds playing harps, but living the best life we can ever imagine. Love to do a series on heaven someday where we really dig into what that looks like. But it's not just living in one mansion all the time. You're seeing the same people going through the same motions over and over again. Can you imagine what it's like to live in a place where you can explore and dream and and be adventurous without the fear or worry of sin and death? You can paint to your heart's content and live into the abilities and the gifts that God's given you for an eternity. You can explore new ideas, new things. You can read new technologies, new this, new that. We think we we get this closed mind on what heaven's going to be like. But we give a lot more credence to hell by the way we live. I'm going to close in prayer. Some of you are struggling with this. Some of you are living in a sinful lifestyle right now. You're doing things that you know don't line up with God's perfect design for humanity, for you. You've allowed sin that was crouching at your door to come right on in and to take a seat, to take up residence, maybe even to take the bedroom, the guest room. And you need to kick him out. Give him an eviction notice. It will be the hardest thing you've ever had to do. I promise you. But it will be the best thing you've ever done. Is to allow the Spirit to come in, clean house, and let you live a new life in peace. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you our best, not just our leftovers. Because we know you reject the leftovers we have to offer. God, we want to give you what you deserve, which is everything. But help us to remember that in giving you everything, we receive everything in return that brings us true life. Convict of sin in this place this morning. Liberate people from sin and death. Give us the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ, I pray, as we surrender our lives to him. And it is in his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.